Please to Psalm 12. Psalm 12. preached Psalm 11 some months back and I remember at the time uh, looking at Psalm 12 and thinking you know these two Psalms go so well together and uh, they could be called Psalms for our times couldn't they? Psalm 12 is, uh, uh, is the passage we're looking at tonight and you'll notice the inscription says to the chief musician so it was meant to be sung as a song in the temple on an eight-stringed harp that's what the Hebrew word Sheminith means a psalm of David. Now, I actually went online once, and because uh, I'm quite interested in guitars, I thought I'd have a listen, see if I could find out what these harps sound like. And uh, I have to say, I was quite disappointed when I heard a, an eight-string harp. I was expecting something big and deep and beautiful, and it was actually a very small harp. So it suggests this was something written for personal worship and personal reflection. And uh, the, the eight-string harp sounded very high and tinny. It was a, a very different sound to what I was expecting. But nevertheless, it tells us David wrote this uh, for at least one man alone to be able to sing to God. Verse 1, help, Lord, for the godly man ceases. For the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. They speak idly, every one with his neighbor. With flattering lips and double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off flattering lips and the tongue that speaks proud things. Who have said, with our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? For the oppression of the poor, for the sighing of the needy, now I will arise, says the Lord. I will set him in the safety for which he yearns. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. You shall keep them, O Lord, you shall preserve them from this generation forever. The wicked prowl on every side. When vileness is exalted among the sons of men. Please keep your Bible open there. A week after the uh, terrible attacks of 9-11 happened, a a reporter from CNN News went to the ruins and uh, they were looking over the ruins with their uh, cameraman next to them and, and surveying the situation one week on. And as they looked at the ruins, they saw uh, a, a part of a building which was still got its wall, uh, inside wall, but it was now, of course, blasted open. And inside, on this inside wall, was hanging a picture of the face of the Lord Jesus, as depicted by an artist. And it was as if the Lord Jesus Christ was looking out over all these ruins. And when the camera uh, locked onto this picture and the uh, commentator saw it, he said, my goodness, no need for words there. And they just paused there and left it like that. But it was very poignant. It was as if that picture had been allowed to be left there, as if to make a statement to the world. If you reject me, then this is the type of world you're choosing for yourself. You reject me, this is, this is what you'll have. And this is the type of the world that 
man has chosen. We live in a God-rejecting, Christ-blaspheming, Bible-mocking world that is hostile to Christianity. 2 Timothy 3, we read earlier on, the Bible said that in the last days there will be perilous times. Brothers and sisters, you know as well as I do, perilous times are here. It's that world we're living now. You know, in the olden days, uh, when you went to get a job, people would say, you know, if you go, if you go to church, put that on your CV. That'll, that'll help you with getting a job. Today, you wouldn't dare mention it. <laughs> it would go against you because the world doesn't want anything to do with God. But actually, the situation isn't altogether new because David complained of such a situation in Psalm 11 and Psalm 12. Back in Psalm 11, verse 3, he said, If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? What a state the world is in when the foundations are destroyed and you can't even lay a foundation for God's work. But here in in Psalm 12, he lays out uh, a psalm which is personal to him about the state of the situation he found in his day. It's not not told us exactly when it was written in David's life, but we suspect it was written in the days when he was on the run from King Saul. When King Saul, towards the end of his life especially, became more and more uh, unbalanced and uh, going into deeper sin and allowing deeper sin to rise in the nation. And into that situation, David wrote this psalm for his own personal prayer and reference and for sharing it with others later on. And I want us to see tonight three things that come out of this psalm to help us get our bearings for the days that we're living in. I want to see the situation that confronts us in verses 1 to 4, the saviour who champions us in verse 5, and the scriptures that comfort us in verses 6 to 8. First of all, the situation that confronts us. If you notice, verse 1 begins, help Lord. (laughs) And that's two words which are a prayer on their own. Peter prayed the same prayer, didn't he, when he was on the water. And he took his eyes off the Lord and started to sink and the waves started to get the better of him. Help Lord. Two two words can be a prayer. And these two words were the words that, that David cried out to the Lord as he felt sinking, uh, as he looked at the situation of the world before him. And the, and the situation really in verses 1 to 4 was a threefold situation. First of all, there was the disappearance of the godly. He said, help Lord, for the godly man ceases, for the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. Now, we're not sure how this was happening in David's day. There's a number of ways in which it could have been happening. Uh, It could have been happening through the decline numerically of godly people. You know, I think of this when uh, our older generation who knew the Lord and walked with the Lord in this country and uh, who went to church, as they die off, we see the godly decrease out of a nation. And they're not being replaced. They're not being replaced. And so a nation is losing godly Christians out of, out of, out of its company. And we see that in our, our own church with every blessed saint who's, who's uh, promoted to glory, like Doug has been this week. You know, we lose an ever godly saint, an ever godly man who helps us uh, in the work. 
But there's another way it can be. It can be that they also decline not only numerically, but they decline spiritually. That actually those who once were godly are now no longer walking with the Lord. And they're just blending in with everybody else. And people who once stood out as bright saints, they're just like everyone else now. And sad to say we've seen that happen too, haven't we? And so David says, help for the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. This is a a, a chief complaint uh, for those who care about the age in which they're living in. Isaiah said the same thing in his day. Isaiah 57 verse 1, the righteous perishes and no man takes it to heart. And nobody thinks seriously about righteous people dying and leaving our world. But it has an impact. And Micah chapter 7 verse 1, uh, verse 2, Micah said, The faithful man perishes from the earth, and there is no one upright among men. Micah and Isaiah felt the same thing as David did. Now you say, well, John, why is that so serious uh, to lose the godly out of a nation? Well, it's serious for the church's sake. Warren Wiersbe in one of his books makes this statement. He said, you should pray for your church because every church is one generation short of extinction. That's a sobering reality, isn't it? Union Chapel is one generation short of extinction. This church theoretically could close if it doesn't have the next generation coming up. So that's why it's serious for the church. But it's serious for the future of the world as well. Because the believers are the salt of the earth. You remember the Lord Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 5. You are the salt of the earth. Now what does salt do? Salt preserves, doesn't it? It has a preserve. It doesn't stop the rot, but it slows it down. And the presence of the salt helps preserve. And that's the impact of godly people in our nation. And that's why when godly people are going you will see an increase in wickedness. As verse 8 goes on to say at the end, the wicked prowl on every side when vileness is exalted among the sons of men. It allows the rot to come in all the quicker. Some of you may remember this terrible tragedy that happened in uh, 1966, the Abba Fan disaster. And uh, if you can see the black there, that is all one giant slag heap that came crashing down on the village of Aberfan in Wales near Merford Tidful. And uh, it killed 116 children in a school and 28 adults. And uh, a pastor friend of mine in the prophetic witness movement was pastor in that area at that time. And he had to take the funerals of those people. And he said it was awful hearing the, the siren go the, uh, for the thing because it meant they found a never dead body, a never dead body, never dead body. And it just seemed to go on and on and on. But do you know how that happened? They built this slag heap on, 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 a, on a spring of water. And it was weakening underneath. But they did something else as well. They made one terrible mistake. Somebody thought it would be a good idea to take out the trees. And when you took out the trees, there was nothing to hold it back when the rain came. And the slaggy just went whoosh. You take the godly out of this world. And you'll have a flood of evil come in. So David says, help Lord. 
for the godly man ceases, for the faithful disappear among the sons of men. This is a serious situation that confronts us. But it's also serious because of the double talk of the hypocrites in verse 2. It says, they speak idly, every one with his neighbor, with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. You know, you can't trust people's word anymore, can you? There used to be a day when it was said that a, a, an Englishman's word was his bond. You could trust a man if he said it. You can't trust people's word anymore. They'll say one thing and do another. I remember I used to go and visit an old man called Les. And uh, he was a, an old saint who was a, 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 a... I was a younger, much younger. I was probably in my 20s. And uh, I used to go and see Les. And we'd talk about the Bible and pray. And he would always go on about the politicians. And he'd say about the politicians, he said, they talk out of both sides of their mouths. And I've never forgotten that phrase. But that's what, what David's saying here. They talk out, they speak idly with flattering lips and with a double heart they speak. They'll say yes to one person and no to another. And they'll say something that contradicts totally. You don't know where you stand with them. This is where it's hypocrisy. They'll stand for whatever is popular at the time and turn around and be against it uh, another time if that is the case. And you know what? When you don't know what people's word means, that's when you don't have any trust anymore. And, no word, and the nation and the world runs on trust on what people say. When you can't trust what the government say, when you can't trust what the police say, when you can't trust what the teachers say, listen, when you can't trust what the man in the pulpit says, the world is sinking fast and chaos is on its way. And thirdly, he says about the defiance of the wicked. He, he comes to prayer in verse 3. He says, may the Lord cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that speaks proud things. He's asking God to cut them off. That means to, to remove them from the Lord's people in, in the land of Israel. Who have said, with our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? Now, this is the words of the ungodly, the words of the wicked. Uh, these aren't hypocrites. These are outright defiant people. And they say, who's going to tell us what to do with our lips? And they say, with our lips, we will prevail. Now, what's he talking about here? A number of Bible commentators believe that he's talking about people using magic spells, occultic spells. With our lips, we'll prevail. We'll cast spells that will give us power over other people. Now, you may say, well, I'm glad that doesn't happen today. But you speak to any teenager in school and you'll find out it's happening very much today. Witchcraft is very much on the increase. And people say, well, why shouldn't I? No, who can tell me what to do with my lips? My lips belong to me. Who's Lord over us? Just like in this psalm. They're defiant. Actually, Matthew 12 tells us that each one of us will be accountable for the words that we say. So we can't uh, say those things that we're unaccountable for it. But that's the serious situation that it is in the world today. And you can imagine this is only going to get worse as we get towards the end time. I mean, talk about the disappearance of the godly. What's it going to be like when the rapture happens? And the remaining saints here are taken out of this world. When the double-talking people are get even worse and the Antichrist comes with his false words. It's going to be a terrible situation.
So what can we do about it? We just hang our heads in despair. There's nothing we can do, is there? Remember what David said in the beginning? Verse 1. Help, Lord. What did he do? He prayed about it. He prayed about it. He didn't just complain about it. He prayed about it. You know, years ago, I remember hearing a preacher say that uh, prayer is one of the weapons God has given us, but unused weapons don't win wars. I've never forgotten that quote. Prayer is one of the weapons God's given us, but unused weapons don't use wars. So let's be those who pray about the situation around us and say, help Lord, this is the situation in our day and age and we need you to step in. And thank God we can have confidence that he will because the next thing we see in the psalm is a word of hope. It, says, it talks about the saviour who, who champions us in verse 5. And now the speaker is not David but the Lord. And the Lord says this in verse 5, For the oppression of the poor, for the sighing of the needy, now I will rise, says the Lord. I will set him in the safety for which he yearns. The good news is that the Lord God is not indifferent to the situation. He's not indifferent. He may seem slow to us to act, but he's not. He's always perfectly on time. And in the right time, he will act. Because he hears the poor and the sighing. The oppression of the poor and the sighing of the needy. If you want proof of that, go back to the book of Exodus and read about how the children of Israel, when they were in Egypt, they were sighing and they were crying out under the labor of Pharaoh. And God heard their sighs and God sent Moses to be their deliverer. Now, it didn't happen anything like as fast as the people wanted it to, but God was doing things his time and his way. And that's what he says here. He says, when he hears the sighing and the crying of the people, he says, then I will say, now I will arise. I like that word arise. In the Hebrew, it's the word kum, Q-U-M, if you were writing it in English. And it's found in one other place in scripture. It's found in Numbers chapter 10, and it's used of when they lifted the Ark of the Covenant up and they went into battle. And do you remember they said those words that we used to sing in a chorus? Let God arise and let his enemies be scattered. We used to sing that, didn't we? Well, this is what they would do every time they lifted the Ark of the Covenant and God was marching out to help the people. Well, this is what God says he will do. I will arise, just like that. And he says, I will set him, I will set the person who's affected by this, who's looking to me in faith, I will set him in the safety for which he yearns. It's a wonderful thing to know the Lord can lift people to safety. And he did it with David. He did it with David. Now David was on the run from Saul, but Saul never killed David. And God kept him one step ahead. And sometimes Saul was on one side of the mountain hunting David. And David and his men were on the other side of the mountain. And they were moving like this around the mountain. But God just kept Saul away all the time. And eventually a message came to Saul telling him the Philistines had come and he had to go and leave. Sometimes it was pretty hairy like that. But God protected David and kept him safe. And David eventually came to the throne. Did you not read, uh, notice in 2 Timothy 3 when we read it earlier on, Paul said this. He said about all the things that he had been through at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, what persecutions I endured. 
and out of them all the Lord delivered me. It's a tremendous statement, isn't it? He said, you know, and you think what Paul went through. You read the book of 2 Corinthians sometimes. It'll make your hair stand on end. But God delivered him out of them all. And one day, ultimately, he is going to do that for one generation of believers when the world is at its darkest. And he will literally lift them up into safety when the Lord Jesus comes for his church. And uh, he'll lift them up in the rapture and take us to heaven. And he will set us in the safety for which we yearn. I heard someone say once, you know, when there's an earthquake, the safest place to be is in the air. (laughs) And that's what it will be like when the world gets dark. Well, Lord, come and lift us up and praise God we have that hope. But, you know, let's have faith in the Savior who champions us and who says these things and gives us our, our tr- uh, his word for us to put our trust in. I read, uh, you know, just a, as a testimony here, I read a, 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 um, an amazing story about a, a, miracle, uh, a miracle of deliverance, really, uh, for a man by the name of Doug Vavrosky. And he was an American missionary in Taiwan. And Taiwan quite a hostile country to Christianity and he was he lived there with his wife and you know when you settle in a country you get about life just like you do when you're in this country in your home and one of the things he he, he wanted to do is he wanted to learn better guitar my eyes picked up when I read this story I thought this is my type of person and he started going out to guitar lessons there was a guy who was giving guitar lessons he was really good and he wanted to get uh, some lessons uh, from this guy and one night when they were traveling back uh, in the dark after his guitar lessons, for him to go back home to his wife and children, a gang of mopeds came around them and put, forced the car off, to, off the side onto a track. And when the men had cornered the car, each one of these men produced a samurai sword. And there had been roadside executions in this area by these people a number of times and they knew it wasn't an idle threat and they were very frightened and uh, they made a, a bolt they thought we're in a car they're on mopeds let's let's try and get away from them so they tried and uh, it went uh, in, in a bit of a, a, a race and ended up actually in Doug and his uh, friend crashing in their car they were forced off and Doug was left in a serious accident in the car while his friend got out and he could, opened his eyes, you know, seeing through the blood from the accident. And he saw his friend on his knees and one of these men with their sword drawn ready to execute him. And he said, Lord, please save him. He doesn't even know you as his savior. He just prayed. And when he prayed, The man with the sword turned around and he realized the man in the car was American. And he came up to him, this is bizarre, he came up and said, You American? (laughs) Hey, shake hands, we be friends. And they all got off on their motorbikes and cleared off. Just because they heard his accent. Now that's crazy, isn't it? crazy but the Lord rescued those men in a, in, a, in a split second and God can do that he is the one we, we can put our trust in as a saviour and a deliverer the third thing we see here is the scriptures that comfort us and this is verses 6 to 8 
And uh, the point in verses 6 to 8 is this. We can't trust the words of the people in this world. And that's what we see in the psalm earlier on. Their words are double-hearted words. They speak out of both sides of their lips, as I said. They'll lie. They'll use uh, their lips for all sorts of things. We can't trust the words of the people in the world. But we can trust the words of our God. And if God says in verse 5, I will arise and set him in safety... We don't have to think to ourselves, yeah, yeah, I know, but it's not really going to happen, John. We think to ourselves, no, it is going to happen. Because God's words can be trusted. And that's what this last part of the psalm is teaching us. It's teaching us that God's word is what we need for the situation. He says that God's word are pure, and that's why we can trust it in verse 6. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Now, in the olden days, if you wanted to, well, it's still the same, if you want to purify silver or any metal, you have to put it through a smelting process, and you have to get it to separate from the earth and, and any ore and so on. And, and this, when you go through this process again and again and again, you end up with pure, perfect metal, or in this case, silver. And this is what he says the word of God is like. He said it's not like a mixture of like you know, God's word and a bit of man's word and it's all mixed up there together. He says, no, it's like purified silver that's been purified seven times. This is the good stuff. This is pure silver. He said, this is what the word of God is like. Purified seven times. Seven being a number, of course, uh, connected with God and completion and perfection. And so purified seven times stands out. And that is true, isn't it? One of the ironies is the people of the world believe you can't trust this book. But we're here tonight because we found you can. The word of God is true. We've tested it. We've seen it. You can test it against the theories of this world. You can test it against scientific theories. You can test it against philosophical theories. You can test it against people's religious ideas. And you will find the Bible stands out above everything else. It is true. It's pure. And that's why you can trust it. Joseph Cook once said, do you know a book that you're willing to put under your head for a pillow when you are dying? That is the book you want to study when you're living. There is only one such book in all the world, the Bible. But it's not only pure, but it's also preserved. uh, And it will preserve. If you look in verse 7, you shall keep them, O Lord. You shall preserve them from this generation forever. Now, there's a debate here about what David is talking about. Whether he's talking about the words being preserved or the people being preserved who put their trust in the word. And my answer is, it's both. It's both. Because both are true. You shall keep them, O Lord. Well, God has kept and preserved the word of God. The the words of man are like grass that goes, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And if you read the history of the church, it's been amazing how many people have wanted to rid the earth of the Bible. Voltaire, for instance, the French philosopher, said within 10 years you won't find a Bible after they've read my works disproving Christianity. Well, the British British Bible Society bought his, uh, or the Bible Society bought his actual printing press and used his printing press to print more Bibles. And they bought his house to store them in. Talk about God having a sense of humor. 
It's called victory over the, the, the lies of the devil that this book will be wiped out. Communism has tried to stamp out this book, but they can't get rid of it. And the world will never get rid of the word of God. It will be preserved. We can praise God. But it's also true, and I, this is the way I lean towards it, is that you shall keep them, the people, O Lord, who put their trust in your word. You shall preserve them from this generation forever. You know what we're all worried about if your parents are saying, God, keep my kids in this wicked world. When I think about our kids in school, and the, you know they're there, and it feels like they're there they're seven days, but they're there five days a week for however many hours there, and they're getting pumped and pumped and pumped. What is going to keep them? I tell you, there's only one thing that's going to keep them. It's the Word of God. It's the Word of God. That's why we've got to get to the children first and raise them in the Word of God. And fill their heads and their hearts with the word of God. That doesn't mean we make their lives a misery where they can't get out of bed and they can't, read, they can't eat their dinner before they've quoted so many chapters of the Bible. I don't mean that sort of pharisaical approach. But we've got to bring the Bible into their lives as much as we can, as truly as we can, and, and in a way that is attractive. To fill their heads and their hearts with the truth of God and God willing to lead them to Christ. This is what Paul said in 2 Timothy 3 uh, that had happened with Timothy. The scriptures were able to make him wise for salvation. And you know who you learned it from. Well, who did he learn it from? He learned it from his mother, Eunice, and his grandmother, Lois, as we read at the beginning chapters of 2 Timothy. And he'd been reared on the word of God, and it had kept him. Well, the word of God is able to keep those who read it. And it has a, a, a power which will preserve them from this generation forever. In his book, How to Be Born Again, Billy Graham tells this uh, amazing story. He says a similar, similar story is told of a missionary who was imprisoned by the Japanese in China. At this concentration camp, the penalty for even owning a portion of the scriptures was death. However, a small gospel of John was smuggled to her in a winter coat. At night, when she went to bed, she pulled the covers over her head and with her flashlight read a verse and then put herself to sleep, memorizing that verse. In this way, over a period of time, she memorized the entire gospel of John. When she went to wash her hands, she would take one page at a time Dissolve it in soap and water and then flush it down the drain. And that is the way, she said, that John and I parted company. This little missionary was interviewed by a Time magazine reporter just before the prisoners were released. The reporter happened to be standing at the gates when the prisoners came out. Most of them shuffled along, eyes on the ground, little more than automatons. Then out came the little missionary, bright as a button. One of the reporters was heard to ask, I wonder if they managed to brainwash her. The time reporter overheard the remark and said, God washed her brain. And that's true. That's the preserving power of the word of God. That's why we can have comfort in the scriptures for ourselves and for others in this ungodly age. And we, I commend you to the word of God and the serious study of it. Trouble is, most of us don't want to do serious study. 
we don't mind a little dab, do you? Type approach, you know, like they used to say, the brill cream advert, a little dabble, do you? I'll do a little verse, I'll do a little bit here and there. But let me tell you something, that's not going to do anything to keep you in the pull of the world. We're up against the organized, demonized powers of hell. You've got to put the word in properly. Sit and read and give time to the study of the word. If you're not having a proper quiet time, at a proper time every day, reading a proper portion of the word, then start tomorrow morning and get into the word. It's what will keep you. And get your family into the word. Establish a family altar. You know, when Elijah was calling the nation back to the Lord at Mount Carmel, what was the first thing he did? He said he prayed for fire. No, he didn't. The first thing he did was he built an altar of 12 stones. Rebuilt the altar. Some of us need to rebuild the family prayer altar and the family Bible altar. So we're bringing the word of God back into our home. The scriptures have the power to help us and they will keep us. In conclusion, I'd like to draw your attention to verse 8. It says, The wicked prowl on every side when vileness is exalted among the sons of men. There's a shocking end to this psalm. Unlike other psalms, which end on a note of praise and a note of deliverance, This psalm ends as it began, with the same problem still there. George Campbell Morgan in his commentary says, at the end of this psalm, there is no revival that is promised. There's no national reformation that is promised. The world is as wicked at the end as it was at the beginning of this psalm. And that's how it's going to be. And I'm not standing here promising you today, if you just say a little prayer and read a little Bible verse, the whole world will be Christianized and it will all be butterflies and roses. It won't be. It won't be. But God will keep us through it. Richard Sibbs, a famous Puritan, once said this little phrase and it became his catchphrase. Times is bad, but God is good. And that's what this psalm is saying. It's a dangerous day to be a Christian. But God is good. And he can keep us and keep us and our families if we call on him, if we look to him, and if we turn properly to his word. May God help each and every one of us to do so.